Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Greenlit. Today we're chatting with Bobby Goldstein. Bobby's been a friend, client, and producer with Bondit for a number of years. And Bobby is both hysterical, but also has an incredible track record of producing a worldwide hit known television show called Cheaters. Bobby, welcome in and thank you for taking the time, man. Thank you so much for having me. I feel relevant and worthy. <laughs> uh, well, Bobby, let's start. Yeah, obviously, you created something a number of years ago that has since gone on to spawn 20 plus seasons of syndicated television. How, how did you start it? How did it come together? What was the Genesis story? And how long has it been running? Because I've seen some contradictory information as I was doing research. You know, Matt, it's kind of a fluke, like ivory soap or champagne. I just stepped into it. I was always kind of a weird duck as a kid, and I'll never forget back in the early 70s, my dad tried to get me to be an industrialist like the rest of the family, and he said, Bobby, you should do some movies, and he made a corporation for me called Bobby Goldstein Productions. Of course, I stayed high, and that didn't mean anything, and you know, finally, after I got it all together and went to law school and practiced, I had this crazy idea. And ironically, I wound up running a company called Bobby Goldstein Productions. So my dad obviously planted the seed in my in my brains. Uh, but the show came about really, uh, I was kind of a wayward young fella practicing law. And I was sitting on a girl's couch naked one night, stoned, and I was wondering if somebody was looking in the window and I you know you get paranoid when you smoke those weeds and I thought oh my god I'm getting spied on anyway whenever I came to or sobered up or whatever I thought that's a hell of an idea for a tv show so that was probably about 94 and I spent the next two years trying to figure out how to make a tv show called cheaters and uh, took a little home video camera and created some sequences that would flow like I imagined the show would run. And it looked pretty good. So I found some more hobos and uh, we made a, a real pilot. And I didn't have any notion about what the TV industry was. So we made this great tape and I took a suitcase full of tapes out to Wilshire Boulevard on a hotel. I couldn't even check in. My goddamn credit cards didn't work. <laughs> I had to, you know, back then the suitcases had rollers on them and mine are full of VH tapes, VHS <laughs> tapes. And uh, finally a holiday in, let me check in. And I went to about eight or nine meetings and came back with seven contracts. <laughs> and Bobby, what, honest what, what, true. What, what, what was the year and, and who were those contracts with, if you remember some of those names in Los Angeles? Sure. Uh, the year that I actually showed up with the suitcase full of tapes was early 1998. Okay. And the first company was Associated Television. Then there, and they're still around. There was Keller Entertainment, which I don't think is still around. Uh, those were the two that I remember because it boiled down to both of them as a possible syndicator. Mm -hmm. So I did eventually start out with a fellow named Max Keller, who's made a bunch of stuff out there, uh, Acapulco Heat and Conan, and he made that movie called Kent State, I think, in 81. Uh, but anyway, so we started with him, wound up with another outfit subsequently, and then I took it all on my own because I got tired of uh, people doing things for me when I felt like I could make a beeline and move right. faster and more forcefully. Understood. 
And so at that time, how many episodes did you have, Bobby? Was it just that one tape or did you lay out what a season would look like and a production budget? How had that been mapped? No, I had one tape when I went to the sale and they all said, uh, well, what does it look like? Can you do more episodes? So I went back to Dallas and made 11 more episodes without any budget. Uh, it was all self-financed uh, without any uh, sale, uh, guaranteed sale. I was really stupid back then. You know, you, nobody does that. You got to be an idiot, which I'm really good at. And uh, so I made a, basically a whole season. And I says, now, do you believe me? You know, we can do this. By the time uh, the first show was made and the second and the third, we got really proficient at it. And we were making, you know, broadcast quality television. And, and the I know you you kindly referenced the people you were working with the other hobos that you organized were they still working with you what did your team look like at that point uh, because this was the early days of unscripted reality TV if I'm not mistaken if some could even say really this was the very genesis of it what did it look like and did you guys know you were at the cutting edge of something sort of running around with a small group no I didn't put two and two together I knew I was making a show that people really got off on and really enjoyed there was no term called reality tv at the time in fact what I was doing was splicing what I called fiction and non-fiction together yep. by the use of a pseudo detective and then real footage uh, the host wasn't really a detective but I made him out to be so the original 11 shows was was in a style of what I, you know, was film noir, uh, dark and, uh, you know, third person narrative. So, um, but the original crew that helped make the pilot didn't survive my education. Hmm. And ultimately, I hired people that, uh, you know, I, there was one, it's like that uh, Nautilus, there was one, and then there was two, the amoeba splitting, and then there was four, and then there was eight. All the while, I'm the liver of everything, so I'm developing quite a bit of toxic shock syndrome from all these things that are foreign to me. But by the time we were in the middle of the first season, I had a great crew that uh, wound up staying with me for many, many years. In fact, until my first hiatus in 2016. And Bobby, were you always in Texas? Did you, did you relocate it in the production outfit to LA at any time? And also, what did the travel look like in terms of where you were shooting and where you were posting, et cetera? Well, I was born in Texas, reared in Texas. And uh, so I never had a notion to relocate because I had so many kids, you know, illegitimate children and stuff like that. <laughs> and uh, with all the child support I had, I couldn't afford a residence out of state. But originally, cheaters did go out of state and travel, you know, to the West Coast, to the East Coast, North, South, East and West. Budgetarily, it was a nightmare. And when I figured out that there was enough hanky panky in this one county, I discontinued uh, traveling outside, you know, the, the four counties that were in here, uh, Dallas County, Tarrant County, Denton County, uh, Ellis County, you know, it's all right here. And, 15 million, 12 million people here, all of them horny and doing their thing. So we didn't have to travel far. Bobby, on that, how would you know when someone was up to no good, right? You, you, you made the comment that early on you framed the host as being a detective, which I want to get into later in the discussion around, I know some of the craziness that occurred with some of the hosts over the years and the uh, things that really made the show super famous and infamous. But how did you guys know? I mean, was there a hotline where people putting tips in? Because this is 
early internet. It wasn't like you had some ability to you know, have a ton of social media presence or anything like that that would bring that relevance forward. It was a dial-up internet at the time. If you even had that, it was still fairly new in 98, 99. The, the uh, speed of that was so slow. And then you have to listen to that terrible sound. <laughs> I ran, uh, there was something called billboards by the day. So I would take out billboards and put them on major intersections where I know people were coming and going. And I, I still have a photo of the sign that says getting cheated on. Want to get even on national television? Call cheaters with my phone number. So uh, we probably got, you know, 300,000 wow. calls in the first couple of years. The phone rang off the hook. Then the internet comes and we create a portal. And inadvertently, we really kind of created the world's largest domestic relations investigations outfit. And it goes on to this day. We get letters in the mail, calls, texts, and I can't disconnect the numbers because, you know, they're they're sentimental to me. <laughs> so it's a business interruption. But yeah, there's a whole lot of shaking going on out there. And so, Bobby, if you were getting 300,000 inbounds in the first year or so, how many of those would you guys follow up on? How would you choose what you guys would chase down and actually make a season out of? Well, remember, originally we were traveling out of town. We discontinued that. Then in the county, we stayed here. And then we became proficient at learning if the complainants were just worried or scared of something. And then we started to really hone in on the nitty gritty. If when we conducted these first interviews or this field production where we go and establish contact, we'll know based on what we're hearing quickly if there's possible merit to the case and if we're going to uh, catch the hand in the cookie jar. And then we stopped taking, of course, every case because it was just unaffordable. You can't do every case in the world. Right. And the, the legalities of thing, these things, right? You, you mentioned having a, a, a background in law. What did that look like um, in terms of where's the gray area here in terms of being able to actually confront someone on television and I'm also curious, Bobby, what does the release look like in terms of getting people to agree to allow it to actually be aired? Yeah, the the laws was uh, were and they're the same now. It was a little bit difficult to navigate around. One would have to understand the law to be able to concoct a show like this, and of course I did. And so I was fully aware that uh, you know there's no privacy expectation in public. I was aware that uh, Texas is what you call a one-party state, unlike Linda Tripp and Monica Lewinsky, Lewinsky, where you're in a state where both parties have to consent to a recording. Mm. Uh, you know, I didn't have that problem here. And then, of course, the broadcast rights, something that we would secure from the complainant or we wouldn't take the case. And generally, the suspect and the third party from whom we have to procure a release was not so difficult to obtain with the appropriate amount of consideration, uh, whether it be that they wanted to tell their side of the story. So in order to do that, they'd have to give a release. Or if I had to give them a little grocery and rent money, uh, that worked also sometimes. Very rarely did we have to pixelate somebody out and obfuscate their, their identity. Right. How many episodes total, Bobby, have, have been produced since the early 90s? Uh, 700 half hour programs 
of those 700, how many still run in syndication? And I know there was also talk at one point, you and I had an offline discussion about rebooting it or shooting new content. I'm curious, I know it's a two-part question, but just understanding syndication, maybe speak a little bit to that and how obviously important that has been, especially for linear TV and even in the streaming era, but then also the idea or the aim to continue to produce under this, this label that's known all over the world. Right. Well, the first part, all of them still run in syndication because I made sure that every episode was timeless and not date stamped in such a way that, you know, you could tell it was from the 1800s. So all of them still run. And there was nothing that gave away that it was shot last week or, you know, 10 years in the future. Syndication, sure. syndication uh, really has had its its day. It still occurs. It's not that great anymore because TV, the industry is not static. It is dynamic. And there's so many other ways to release content out into the world. But syndication work primarily like broadcast networks did. You put them on all the stations. You split your airtime for advertising with the stations. Uh, and that's called barter. And that would still be good today. But advertising has also changed as TV has changed. So what you might get for a 30-second spot uh, in prime time today is surely not what it was 15 or 10 years ago. And while I don't think it's dead, I think it's so different. And there's just so many more juicy fruits on other branches that that's what mm -hmm. we're doing right now. We actually produced up until 21. And we did all that through COVID sneaking around. You know, there weren't that many people out. And we could find people sneaking around because there weren't that many people out. Yeah, uh, And then... Um, we just took a hiatus last year because we've been digitizing our catalog for the streaming. And that's taken all my crew on a full-time basis to, uh, to rearrange these episodes in such a way that it's push button now. Understood. Is, yeah. How, how has it been working with streamers? I know, I know you've worked with a, a handful of them and uh, given pieces of the library to different streamers and like you, you said, I mean, it obviously it's, there's so many ways now to monetize and release content. Has that been a positive? Has it been additive? Has it been more of the same? What's that look like? I was slow to get in on it because, because I am so uh, old school in terms of this show's been around a long time. I had contracts that lasted for years and years that disallowed and proscribed my, my, my ability to stream. Once those contracts came up for expiration, I knew it was time to look at it because it is the new world. So uh, I'm I'm new to the scene, and I put all my eggs in the one basket with an outfit called FilmRise, which is doing a masterful job. Uh, this last year alone, Cheaters has been aired over 500,000 times in the United States only, and I get this information from something called WIO Pro. And my airings are so vast in number that they, they're having a hard time coming up with reports for me because every day there's another thousand, two thousand that run. It's just amazing. So uh, it, it's not like the jojoba bean where I'll have to wait seven years to get the uh, the harvest. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we just planted this and it really just got started in Q4 of 2022. So I, I'm expecting... Uh, really to get a new car and a, probably a mistress uh, in the next few months. <laughs> and, and a car for her too. <laughs> Bobby, walk, walk, walk me through. What's, what's the future 
for cheaters. Uh, and knowing knowing the path you've had now and a pretty wild ride with it, what what's what's what do you see as the the next action points? Well, we'll make some more shows. I'm pretty sure uh, this digitization project has re really taken us a couple of years. Uh, and now that we've almost completed the entire delivery uh, to this uh, new uh, this new practice, we'll make some more shows. The question is now, will we make them uh, on spec like I did the first 22 years, or will we make them for a particular streamer who wants to have the exclusive broadcast rights to those shows? Uh, beyond that, I think the library will continue to grow because we will make more shows. I think the show is a standard for the subject matter. Anybody who's interested in infidelity and adultery. And so I think it's a, you know, part of culture that, you know, probably won't disappear any more than the great music from a, a great band would have made, you know. Sure. Well, so I, I, I never knew, you know, the first year I thought, oh my God, if I could get another year, that'd be great. Second year comes, oh my God, if I could get another year, it'd be great. This goes on for 20 years now and it doesn't go away. And had I known, you know, 23 years ago that I could have paid off a mortgage instead of renting all this time, I would have bought the damn building. Right. Bobby, speaking of um, the, the, the go forward and the impact that you have had on the business in general, what do you think Cheater's biggest impact to television, whether that's Obviously, reality TV is such a huge and unscripted TV, even on the premium level now, is so big. Or on formats and someone realizing, hey, building a catalog like this, you've built an incredible annuity. You've built something you can spawn off for years and years to come. What to you, when you look at it, is the biggest, or you know, if you have a, a couple and you can't say just one, but the biggest thing or things you feel that cheaters impacted the larger industry and culture? I really think it boils down to this. When TV came out in 39 and started becoming a part of everybody's home in 48, corporations owned TV. The government granted them rights to airwaves. And those corporations and the decision makers therein decided that TV was good for sports and news and movies and then the soap dramas and all that kind of stuff. And that's been part of our culture for so long. What cheaters did was, in my opinion, was a bit like the expectorant of a cough medicine. It opened up the airwaves and it resulted in people understanding that television is not just for what corporations want it to be. Mm -hmm. It's for what people want it to be. Viewer ubiquity, omniscience, and all the things that come with 100% unfettered access to any type of content. It is Big Brother, but it's not the government that sees everything. It's all of us that get to see everything. And to me, that's very important. How has social media impacted cheaters at all? I, I, I imagine there's a world in which you could create a short form, boiled down version of this for the digital social media, sort of millennial or even Gen Z type era. I think a lot of kids are doing it on YouTube and this other one called Instagram and there's <laughs> two or three Twitter and all that kind of stuff, which I really don't know what any of that is. I know we have it, but I don't even know how to log on to it. Um, it's just another example of the fact that everybody's a broadcaster and everybody yep. can see and show 
what they want to see and show when they want to see and show it. Right. So when you say you guys use it, you use it from a marketing perspective, but you've never built a, a, a series around a short form digital format. It's always been the long form TV version. No, but if you have the money, I will be kindly to do it for you. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's shift gears for a second, Bobby. I want to talk about, again, the show has had so many wild moments, but there's one in particular where, where a host was attacked or stabbed. I forget the exacts. I remember it growing up uh, well before we ever met. What, what's, what's the actual story? What really occurred? What can you speak to on that? And then I'm sure for those that haven't already picked up on it, Bobby has an incredible wit, super quickness, and some amazing stories. So even those that perhaps are more under the radar would love those as well. Now, there's no story other than what's out there. A lot of people thought it was staged. A, a lot of people who like wrestling know it was not. Uh, I don't know. I wasn't there. I know there's a confidentiality agreement that I'm a party to, so I can't say any more. But I do know that my man, Joey Greco, the host at the time, sustained a, an injury in the course of the filming of this episode, which was later on broadcast. It has uh, experienced great acclaim, being one of the greatest moments in reality TV per VH1 or whoever. Uh, anytime somebody licenses the catalog, they want to make sure they get that show in there. But I, I wasn't there, but I, I don't know why everybody thinks it's, uh, it, it had any poppycock to it. You know, Cheaters has been charged criminally, some of its crew, with false imprisonment, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of things. And I've spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars defending my crew in county courthouses here in this state uh, because we busted somebody and they filed a complaint on us with the police department, one of whom was a, a captain in the Fort Worth the police department. Now, if if this was all poppycock, it would be hard to come up with that. You know, I'm not the magic Christian of Peter Sellers movie. You can't go out and just pay a, a city officials to, to become embarrassed. And, and uh, But anyway, the sweetest sound I've ever heard uh, other than when the bank teller says, thank you, after I make the deposit, were all the not guilties we got when, you know, I had to defend my guys and hire a bunch of lawyers from them. Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. There's no uh, privacy expectation in public. And if somebody's screwing around and a film crew's there, we've got the right to film it. And if we have to blur their face, that's fine too, but we don't have to blur the cop car. So I don't know where all the, I think people like the controversy. Is it real? Is it not yeah. real? Who killed Kennedy? Was it Oswald alone? Was it somebody else? Who knows? Bobby, speak a little bit about being in Texas and obviously having to work a lot, I'm sure, with LA and New York and the big broadcasters, the corporations that you referenced that have so long controlled the media airwaves. I know that that has, has since changed and streamers and technology have displaced a lot of that. Was being in Texas, was it a benefit? Was it a challenge? Was it both? And did you have to work with agents and managers in sort of the big media market hubs, if you will, as you were making the show? And how did that look? No, it, being in Texas is, has really been great. You know, it, even though it's a great economy and it's equidistant to both coasts. Yep. It was really mutually exclusive. I made a show in a right-to-work state where I didn't get wrapped up with guilds and unions, and I could keep my costs down. 
I could operate with a little bit less uh, oversight from a film commission like in L.A. or New York or some of the other states. So for me, I bloomed where I was planted and I knew how to operate here and get around here. I don't know that it would have survived had it had its roots or been transferred to California or New York or something like that. So much uh, red tape and impediment in those areas when it comes to these <clears throat> filming. And uh, so I'm glad that we were here. I never had any notions of going anywhere else with it. Understood. In terms of episodes and people that uh, you just referenced, you know, a police captain or higher ranking folks in the public eye that you end up disclosing their, their infidelity. Were there ever any celebrities, famous folks on a, on a global level or even a national level that come to mind in terms of the marquee type episodes? Well, uh, I didn't, Hillary Clinton did not call us on the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky deal. Uh, although we were filming then, I don't think it occurred to her that we could uh, help her get even on national TV. It already happened. We yes. were, <laughs> we were uh, a participant in the Ike Turner case, Tina Turner's ex-husband. Yep. Um, and he died before it it uh, aired he died i think he was in his 70s and snorting that cocaine and so uh, that was the end of that so he he was one that i was excited for but generally the uh the higher up the social and economic echelon the the suspects are the more dimensions you have to go through to catch them uh instead of you know they're not on the same plane you know they don't go from the residence to the apartment to the hotel to the restaurant these guys go to the sky in another city, and that makes it a little bit challenging to try to catch them. Yep, understood. Do you think that, again, the show's obviously had a, plenty of its own controversies and controversial moments throughout its history. Do you think that show gets greenlit today? Well, no. No, I don't. Not by a network. They want to keep it, you know, advertiser friendly. There's still an underbelly to this. A Balzac, if you will, Honor de Balzac, the French writer who wrote of things that were unpleasant for people to look in the mirror about. So, no, I don't think it does get greenlit today. I uh, I had to do it all on my own. Uh, the networks thought I was crazy. I still have a letter from the president of ABC who said that uh, I was crazy and this was never going to get on TV. So, no, I don't think anything's really changed in terms of the corporate culture. Hmm. It's, not a, it's not a form of censorship. It's a form of uh, uh, corporate philosophy. You know, they don't want anything that that uh, they should be on themselves. <laughs> right. Right. I, I read in prep for this discussion I believe in an interview you did with Voyage Dallas that you said to the interviewer that you've always enjoyed taking the road less traveled through, throughout your career. And certainly you have, and you've built something super unique as a result of not following in other people's steps as you went about doing it. When you think about people making content today, again, landscape's totally different, but still so much of that principle serves people, certainly creatives that have to work super hard when someone doesn't immediately take to an idea and support it. What do you think has been the handful of traits that you've had in your career that have led to enjoying that unknown and ending up finding success as that path continued? Well, I read once where I think 
Lily Tomlin said, be yourself. Everybody else has already been taken. Mm -hmm. uh, that meant a lot more to me later on in life because I was, as a young guy, a great emulator. I didn't know who I wanted to be. I tried to be the heavyweight champion of the world. That didn't work out for me. A left-handed British bass player, that didn't work out for me. I had to do what I was all about. And my youth and the way I was reared and some experiences that I had led me straight into this. It's uh, looking back, it wasn't such a fluke after all. It's like there was this path that was waiting for me and I took it. I think people have to find out what that is and uh, seek their own new shoreline. If they're trying to remake something that's already been done, I, I don't think it's that artistic in terms of is it new or novel? And I think that art is uh, uh, not a mirror to look into ourselves with, but a hammer with which to break it, you know? Mm -hmm. Bobby, we're, we've hit on a lot of the high points of your career and high points of the show's success and its longevity. What are some of the low points? What have been the challenges? I know there's been challenging litigation you referenced, but I also know there's been things around copyright and things that you've challenged and you, you fight hard. You know, that, that's a huge part of who you are since the day I've certainly met you. And obviously, 700 plus episodes in syndication speak to that. What are the low points and how'd you push through them? And again, thinking of the listeners who they're out there making content, going through difficult things on their own, as we all know, willing a piece of content into existence is a remarkably difficult thing. You know, what are those low points and how did you come out the other end? The low points really have a common theme for me. When expenses exceed cash flow, mm -hmm. I am lower than a crippled cricket's ass. Let me tell you, it's a miserable feeling. And I think all, you know, you get nervous. Uh, small business owners and entrepreneurs stay scared. Oh my God, how am I going to feed my kids? What am I going to tell them that I can't afford to send them to school? Well, she's going to need a new car. How the hell am I going to buy that? And what I do is I keep the faith. I work like prayer won't help. And I pray like work won't help. <clears throat> and it always works out. In fact, I don't have it right here on my desk. I've got a file folder and it's labeled miracles. <clears throat> every time something happens that is a wonderful thing and help me get to the next stone, I write it on there. Trust me, Bondit is on that list. Uh, so, and there's a never ending series and successions of miracles. You just can't quit and you can't lose a fight if you don't quit fighting. Bobby, I would love if it's possible for you to send that list through a photo of that list, whenever you find it, or even a handful of them that you're comfortable sharing. I'd love to share it in the show notes uh, and add it as a, as a piece of this interview. I think people would love to see that. Happy to. Uh, oh yes, it'll be. There'll be more about it, I'm sure, as you know about the picture, the seventh commandment about cheaters. So, uh, and that's a perfect, that's, that, yeah, that's a perfect segue, Bobby. So I know that for a while, just setting the context a little bit, for a while you've thought about creating effectively a biopic around yourself and the the creation of cheaters, and speak a little bit to that. Obviously, I'm aware. I know we've we've had discussions about it, and our team has assisted on some of the packaging as you're working to put that that project towards a feature film adaptation of this story, but speak a little bit to it, where it is, how that came about um, and how you think, again, it's an amazing and a crazy story, but I'm curious how you think about it as you've gone through the differences of developing a film versus syndicated reality TV show. 
Well, I can't take credit for coming up with the idea. A lot of the cats that I worked with uh, got to enjoy more of the camaraderie than I got to in the studios back in the day because I was busy in the offices and they were out there interacting with each other. And so a lot of them thought it would be a good idea to create some documentary footage, but I, I didn't, I didn't have time. You know, we were strict. <laughs> we had a, my core business was to make cheaters, not be self aggrandizing. So a guy named Tony Krantz, who's a big shot in the TV world, his mother's Judith Krantz. They called me one day and said, would I be interested in submitting this crazy history of mine to a picture? So they hired a guy named Michael Dillaberti to write it. And before he got started, Fox hired him away and Tony Krantz abated and I got the project back. Finally, uh, one of my lawyer friends has a son who's gone to UCLA, Matt Ackles. He's a great writer. And uh, so we co collaborated on this and made this a, a teleplay. And now it's been picked up. I don't want to make any announcements about it because it's not mine to make, but some really sure. big big stuff is happening with this. And I think in the next few weeks, it'll come to light. It's a crazy co comedic backstory of the making of cheaters and how, you know, a nut like me can bootstrap uh, from nothing other than a twig or two and make a worldwide successful TV show. It's not really about me. I, I'm not, uh, I'm not that vain, but regrettably, uh, other people insist that I have something to do with it. So I, I guess I'm in there a lot, but. And I'm Bobby, still... I... huh? yeah, not, not, not to cut you off. I know that the energy of that screenplay reads almost part Scorsese meets part David O. Russell think sort of American hustle in terms of its frenetic energy and the way that the script is written with lots of intensive camera movement that really mirrors just the craziness of those periods and those stories and the building of that show, do you feel that that's accurate? Like it, it really was that wild and how long of a run did it feel that energetic? It really was that wild, if not wilder. It's still going on, man. It's still going on. Uh, if I can be candid, I'm still a fucking ping pong ball and I'm at the middle of a Chinese table tennis tournament. And I'm getting beat over here and I'm getting beat over there. And I just keep marching through with grace and style. man. <laughs> That's all I know how to do. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's still excellent. going on. It's excellent. Bobby, I know we're, we're going to come up on time here in, in a few minutes. Um, anything, let's say the listeners out there again, who are uh, interested in making, whether it's feature film, scripted docs, unscripted, you know, so on and so forth. What do you see as being the, the B1 single principle? You know, you've used a number of great phrases. The uh, pray, like, pray like work won't work and work like prayer won't work is a pretty unbelievable one. But what do you think if you had one piece of advice knowing generationally how much things have changed, but at the end of the day, making content and working hard in this business is pretty consistent since it's really started. For you, what does that look like to get things greenlit? Matt, it's real easy. I read this years ago and it never has left me. To be an original, one must have the courage to be an amateur, mm. period. Mm. If, you can read a, if you can read a book on how to do it, you're not going to be an original. If there is no book on how to do it and you do it, you're an original, but you've got to be an amateur. 
And I'll repeat it for you. To be an original, one must have the courage to be an amateur. Love it, Bobby. Matt, you're well, I, wanna... I, I didn't mean to make you cry. I am so here <laughs> give me a hug. Yeah. <laughs> it's great, Bobby. Well, I really, really appreciate you spending the time. Again, we've had a really fun ride with you over the years, and it's awesome to see the show having gone from the first time we started doing business together, syndication, you know, traditional linear syndication deals, and then now seeing it really open up and run its legs out towards VOD platforms. And you have to imagine... There's a lot more of that ahead, especially with a 700 plus episode library. So kudos to you and obviously the team for, for fighting pretty hard over the years to build something that's lasted a long time. Thank you, brother. You know, you're on the board around here. So God bless you. And thank you for all your help along the way. Of course. Thank you, Bobby. Appreciate it. See you soon.